welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your ongoing host and interviewer. Today's a cool day. We have a reprisal. Karen Dillon, who was a previous guest on our program, has accepted our invitation to return and talk about an amazing new book that she's co-authoring called The Prosperity Paradox. If you missed Karen's earlier interview, you have to download it from our podcast series at franklincovey.com. Several months ago, Karen joined us to talk about a book that she co-authored with the famed professor Clayton Christensen called How Will You Measure Your Life? This is a prophetic book that surprisingly takes some well-tested business principles and applies them inspiringly to our own personal lives. It's a great leadership book. If you've not bought and read the book, How Will You Measure Your Life, go do that. And we encourage you to listen to that podcast interview as well. Karen, welcome back to On Leadership from your home in the Boston area. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Hey, such an honor to have you back. Excited to talk about this new book you've co-authored with Clayton Christensen and Ifosa Ojomo. Now, my version is a little bit well-loved. You gave me a pre-pressed copy from the publisher. This book comes out on January 15th in hardcover. Talk a bit about the, um, the initiative, the, the mindset. What was the inspiration behind this new book called The Prosperity Paradox? Well, I've had the honor of working with Clay Christensen for a number of years on helping uh, bring his theories, which he teaches in his classroom and which he's sort of world famous for, to, to practitioners, to people in the field, to understand how to apply business theory to really difficult problems. And the appeal of his theories in solving the problem of poverty in the world was really compelling to me. So Clay and my co-author, Afosa, had been doing research for a number of years on how do we tackle the problem of poverty uh, and turned it into a different question. How do we think about creating prosperity, which is a different question to answer. And I just wanted to be part of that because I think it's one of the most important questions of our time. And if I could play any role in helping people understand that, how to generate prosperity, I was happy to do it. You know, Kara, when I first picked up the book from the publisher, when they sent it to me, the tagline says, how innovation can lift nations out of poverty. You know, it didn't speak to me directly. Part of my job and mission yet, as of yet, isn't to lift nations out of poverty. So it felt kind of a bit high-minded to me. But as I got into it and spent a month literally reading this book, it's got amazing leadership lessons that can be applied from these you know, international case studies, which are compelling. We'll talk more about those. But it was, it was surprisingly relevant to someone like me, just you know, an everyday dad living in America, working in my own career. Uh, talk a bit about the, the connection between the big-mindedness of the book and how people can learn everyday lessons as leaders as well. I think at a really simple level, the book is just trying to remind people that sometimes we can solve problems in our lives better by seeing them differently or asking different questions about them. So the problem of poverty is obviously a global one and economic development are global issues and we all probably armchair care about those. Um, but we thought that's the most extreme version of how you can think about a problem differently and perhaps see answers differently through, in our terms, putting theory on, putting lenses of theory on and seeing it differently. But you can apply that thinking really to any problem you're struggling with in your life. Are you asking the right questions about it? Do you understand what causes what to happen? Have you been stuck in a mindset? You're so far down the line that you haven't stopped to question, can we do things differently? Should we be asking different questions? Will fresh eyes help me see something differently? That's, I think, at a very simple level, 
what's universal for everyone. Uh, in addition to, I think most of us would like to see the world become more prosperous. It's heartbreaking uh, what's happening in so many parts of the world. And if we have some new ideas to share, that can both offer companies and individuals the ideas for being an entrepreneur or, or growth uh, and have the added benefit of helping lift people out of poverty, that's a good thing. You know, Karen, I'll be honest, the book was very frustrating to me. And I mean that as a compliment because all books that you and Clay write with your co-authors, Afosa, in this, in this particular instance, they're, they're very thought-provoking. I find myself reading four pages and then stopping and thinking, you know, how does this apply in my personal life? How does it apply as a father, as a business leader, as a perhaps future entrepreneur, as a radio host? All the roles that I play in my life, I think one of the things your books have in common is literally every couple of pages, there's a story or a thought or a suggestion of how to look at things differently. And I think it's a great compliment, although it makes for a month read because you know I put it down every couple of pages or so. Let's, let's define some terms as we begin. You define prosperity in the book as the process by which more and more people in a region improve their economic, social, and political well-being. Seems good. Remind us, what is the paradox that comes with that? Well, if you look at how the world defines poverty, the opposite side of the coin of prosperity, it's really, it's a simple black and white definition. There are a lot of universal definitions say people who survive on less than $2 a day or live in poverty. Above that, no longer poverty. Uh, I think most of us would understand that no matter what country you're in and how inexpensive living is, surviving on $2.01 a day or $3 a day or $10 a day is still not a life any of us would aspire to. So we tried to uh, define prosperity in a way that everybody would understand. Everybody wants to strive to have a better life. They want to, they want to not just exist or exist without stress, they want to actually make their lives better and have children's lives be better and be able to improve the circumstances and the time that they spend with their family and do work that they value, all of those things. And none of those things are come with simply being able to survive on a little more than $2 a day. So we really wanted to define it the way any of us would define prosperity is the ability to improve your life significantly. It makes sense. Karen, let's start and by talking about Ifosa's experience. I think it was with his project around bringing wells, I think, in, in, in Nigeria. Will you kind of recreate the story there with your co-author and how that became kind of the crux of uh, the beginning of the book? Sure. Afosa um, is from Nigeria originally, but he had been in the United States for a very long time. He came, he got, he came to America on a scholarship and stayed and, and was doing very well, I think, as a salesman in Wisconsin. And he just, in the course of you know, his life, was reading a book where he had read a story about a 10-year-old girl who, I think it was in Ethiopia, who had to rise at 3 in the morning, I think it was, every day to go fetch firewood so she could go to a market and sell it so that she could provide some income for her family, again, for survival. And he was just so profoundly moved by that. That story just shook him that there could be a 10-year-old girl whose life was like that. And even though he probably knew that, from his own experience growing up in Nigeria, it just it just hit home for him. So he decided personally, I'm gonna be part of the solution. I am going to raise money to stop poverty. And he created his own nonprofit called Poverty Stops Now. And his goal was, he looked around and said, what problems can I help solve? Uh, and he saw water, the access to clean water was a gigantic problem in lots of places, but certainly in his home country of Nigeria. So he raised from friends and family, hundreds of thousands of dollars 
with the specific goal of they would go and put in functioning wells in various communities in Nigeria. So he and his his friends and family who supported him went off and had these wonderful celebratory visits to different villages in Nigeria where they had created a functioning well. And as he describes it in the book and, and when you talk to him, it was one of the most thrilling feelings of his life. Water is life and seeing water gushing out of a well where people had previously had to walk miles to a river to clean and get water and things like that. It was, it was exciting. He felt that he personally had made a dent in poverty in his home country. He went back to Wisconsin, his home in Wisconsin, and felt great about what they had accomplished and left in those communities. And then months went by and he'd get a phone call. One of the wells had broken down. So here he is in Wisconsin and he has to figure out, I'm responsible for this well, how am I going to fix it? So he calls around, finds someone to get out to the village, fix it, and then the breaks again and again. And over time, four out of the five wells that he had installed ended up becoming malfunctioning and, and not working. And what might have been even more heartbreaking for him is the wells he had installed in a few places were within eyesight of wells that had previously been installed by NGOs or outside organizations as well with the same good intentions that had been defunct and were no longer functioning. And he realized that no matter what, simply sort of throwing resources at a problem that doesn't that doesn't get solved in any other way is never gonna change the equation. It was just the frustration of, I can't just pour money into solving these visible signs of poverty, something else has to happen. And that's when, as he went on to Harvard Business School and sat in Clay Christensen's class, he began to understand the power of thinking about the problem differently. Not how will we solve poverty, but how can we generate prosperity? Prosperity would create the kind of environment and community that could sustain its own wells and have other businesses and reasons that wells were needed so that it didn't rely on a phone call to somebody in Wisconsin to figure out how to fix it. And that was the beginning of, of a multi-year research project that he worked on with Clay Christensen and I joined them on to try to answer this question. How do we generate prosperity? Karen, it's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. I, I found a Fosa story very inspiring because I have lots of friends that you know have children they've adopted from other countries, from Africa, and then they fall in love with the community, and then they you know pour their their hearts and their fundraising into initiatives, and do great things. And like a Fosa's story, it's interrupted, and it doesn't mean they shouldn't do that. But you kind of give us a, a call to action and a caution just to think very carefully around the role that innovation plays in that and how you're going to sustain it. Let's talk about that concept because in some ways the book is two parts, a very inspiring call to action on how you can help you know, lift people out of poverty and also these great business principles that are apply in our own lives every day here back in kind of the first world economy around innovation. In the book, you talk about three types of innovation, sustaining, efficiency, and market creating. Would you give us kind of a quick primer on those three types of innovation? Sure. This is integral to Clay's work. Everybody knows him sort of for disruptive innovation, his famous work on and how companies get uh, upended by upstart competitors. But as he's thought over the years about innovation, he realizes that there are three distinct types of innovation that most companies think about or pursue, and they have very different effects on the company and on the community that they're in. And, and they're all important to the composite of how a company innovates and stays alive, but they, but they function very differently. So sustaining innovation is what most companies do to try to keep their customers happy and keep their market share. It's adding heated seats to a car. 
It's adding new colors for your iPhone or upgrading um, the iPhone, having the new version that everyone feels they have to go out and buy. That means you probably can get a little more money from your existing customers. They'll buy something new with you, or maybe you'll attract a few more, but it's pretty much to stay, to stay competitive in the market. Um, you sustain your innovations by adding bells and whistles and charging a little bit more. Everybody does that. It is important to not be left behind the competitive marketplace. Efficiency innovations are basic, just good management. Let's find ways to be more efficient with our money. Let's figure out how to create this product or service for less money and free up some capital in the company so we can potentially invest it in other things. Efficiency innovations are almost all of what we see happening with factories, jobs moving to Mexico or moving from Mexico to China. There are companies trying to find ways to, to cost less, spend less, making a product or service so that they have more money free. But again, if the job of an efficiency innovation is not to really create growth, it's to make sure they can continue to efficiently create the products and services that they count on creating and free up a little extra money's capital so that they can invest it elsewhere. Both of those are essential to any company strategy. They're, they're nuts and bolts of how you stay in business, but they do not typically create gigantic new growth opportunities for the company. They don't open up new markets, new potential gigantic opportunities in places where companies don't already have customers or businesses. We call the last category, the one we focus on in the book, market creating innovations. And what we mean by that is literally, they will create a market for a product or service where there wasn't one before. So uh, you create something where you didn't seem to see customers at all. There wasn't a product or service that people were getting as an alternative. Instead, you see an opportunity probably that competitors have yet to see and you create a product or service to fill that. Market creating innovations in, in our language are, are make products that are expensive or exist in other forms more affordable and more accessible. So you can create a market for a much wider swath of potential customers by figuring out a way to create something that solves the problem for them, a struggle for them, and they will now choose to get that product or that service when they might have done nothing before. Karen, it's a great overview. To that point on market creating innovation, you talk a lot in the book around non-consumption and competing with apathy. And it's it's a little bit counterintuitive, but I think it's prophetic. Spend a few minutes talking about this concept of competing with non-consumption and why um, apathy can be a fierce competitor. Apathy is a very fierce competitor. Apathy, I think we, we know human beings are so risk averse that they're more likely to suffer than they are to take on a new solution to their problems because they're afraid of, afraid of the risk of involved in doing that. Non-consumption is a word we use in the book to basically define where people can't see potential consumers or a market. All of the way we typically count customers captured in data is about how big the market is, size the market. What do we know? What are, their, what are the competitors to this product or service? If people are choosing not to have any kind of a product or service for their needs, they're non-consumers. They are not consuming any product or service, and it's very difficult to figure out where they are and how big the size of the opportunity is. But we believe that often non-consumption can be identified in different ways through struggles that, that people are having, and it can represent an enormous opportunity to create a market where there was nothing, to create demand where there was no demand. Karen, take a few moments and take your time on this because the story 
about microinsure. I think it's in India that talked about life insurance and, and the cell phone industry was amazing. I think it's a great case study for any organization who's interested in entering a new market, competing with apathy or non-consumption. Walk us through as much detail as you can around the microinsure study. Sure, that's actually one of my favorite stories in the book. Microinsure is a company that has, it's actually UK based, but they do business in India and throughout uh, Africa, um, that's figured out how to offer insurance to people who would otherwise be completely not appealing customers to the traditional insurance industry. So very poor people. The, the backstory is the guy who started it, a guy called Richard Leftley, had worked in the insurance industry in London. And he started getting frustrated as he would see the league tables of, of number of people insured and the problems that they insured against the number of you know, nat uh, natural disasters and devastating illnesses and things that happened throughout the world where there was no insurance. It just didn't make sense that, that the people who most needed insurance had zero access to it. And when he went on a personal trip, I think it was to Zambia uh, in Africa, just, just a personal vacation, he stayed with a family that lived in a small village and it was a mother and child. And he sort of wondered how their path had led them to such poverty. And he learned from the, from the mother that her husband had lived in the city. She and her husband had been professional. They had made it out of the village. They had had a decent life. Uh, and he, unfortunately her husband got HIV and AIDS. And eventually he got really, really sick and they spent as much of their money that, that they had on a mix of traditional medicine and what he'll call hocus pocus medicine. They did whatever they could to try to stave off the AIDS, but he died. And that left her completely destitute. They spent all of their money on that. And he had no medical insurance, nothing like that, no life insurance. So she and her son were forced to return back to their village and start again from the most impoverished rung on the ladder. And there seemed almost no way that they were ever gonna be able to recover from that. So he started thinking, well, why is it that we can't figure out some kind of insurance model that makes sense for people in these circumstances? These people most desperately need this. And he decided that he was gonna figure out how to create his company, MicroInsure, he newly created the company, to basically find a way to offer insurance to the most typically uninsurable people in the world. So people who, who met all those conditions, they might already be sick. They might be very poor market traders in, in various countries, or you might be insuring them against a flood where the country is known to have floods. How could we make that happen? And what he did little by little was completely change the way that, that we think about what insurance is and how we get it and how much it costs. So instead of it being hundreds and hundreds of dollars, he found ways to work with a local mo mobile phone company that uh, the mobile phone company wanted its customers to top up their mobile minutes. So if you topped up $3 or $5 a month, whatever the number was, they would throw in that month's worth of some basic insurance coverage. So he was literally offering as a freebie insurance by working in partnership between an insurance company and a mobile phone company um, to get people to get used to the idea of what insurance could be. And in some of the countries that he worked in, the traditional models of insurance were so foreign that people didn't even know how to respond to who was their next of kin. They had many relatives and that was a hard question to answer. Or the exact date of birth and the actuarial tables just weren't available for them because societies worked differently. So they eventually figured out how to offer free or very inexpensive insurance after someone got it free for a month or two or three, they could choose to top up and, and get a higher level of insurance, uh, knowing only a person's mobile phone number 
and that they had they were a customer of the mobile phone company or something like that. So he was able to completely change the business model so that some level of insurance that would be life-changing to these people could be offered by virtue of us having only a connection through your mobile phone. I don't even know your name. I just know your mobile phone number. I know you're covered this month, and I know if you're hospitalized for two days, we will direct $50 to go into your mobile account. That way you can get in the hospital, get coverage to perhaps be life-saving in some way. It's a dramatically different insurance model, and it took a lot of people, had to do a lot of thinking about how does this make sense? We don't even know who people are. How do we know, you know what their circumstances are? But it's been so popular. He has 50 million customers now, and it's, it's gigantic. It's, I would say it has the potential to disrupt the insurance industry. And more importantly, what he offers people is so modest compared to what we would think of as, as a good insurance, but it's life-changing for them. So there, there was a story he, he told us in the book that the reason he got the idea of offering people insurance for any hospitalization is that he met a woman who was in Bangladesh um, that whose child had been very sick and she got the child to the local hospital and got there and they didn't see any medical people, not nurses, not doctors for, for two days. And after two days, she asked, could she get seen? And they said, it's unlikely we're gonna have a doctor visit this hospital anytime soon. But if you go down the street to the private hospital, you can perhaps get your child seen, but it will cost you $5 to get your child seen at that hospital. Now this woman had absolutely no resources, but she was desperate. Her child was gravely ill. So she went back to her village and she sold all of her possessions so that she could come together with that $5 needed to get her, her child seen in the hospital. She got back with $5 in hand, all of her possessions sold, and her child had died alone in the hallways of that hospital. It's just a devastating story. Uh, so he began to think, what can we do about that? And that's where he came up with the model of, if you are hospitalized for two days, we will send you $50, period. That's what the insurance will cover. And even if you, had, if you knew insurance was coming two days later and you didn't have the $5 needed, at the start, that's easier to borrow money and repay it in two days than it is to have to go back and sell all of your possessions in order to come up with it. It's a life-changing service. And he's, he's since that day wondered or hoped he could see that woman again so he could tell her what her story has led to for other people. But the promise of this, these micro-insurance payments, it could be life-changing for so many people. It's a fantastic market-creating innovation. That's exactly what he did. Karen, beautifully told, that story was heartbreaking. I had to put the book down and think about my three boys as I was thinking about the, 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 the unidentifiable desperation that mom, that, that mother had to go through to come back and find her child deceased. It was a heartbreaking story. Lots of stories like that that are sobering and inspiring. And it's a perfect example of how to build a business around non-consumption and also you know, bring uh, resources to a, a country that otherwise didn't have those, you know, tax dollars and revenue and some job creation. To that very point, you also share a fascinating, kind of funny story about the introduction of, of toilets around sanitary needs in India and some of the struggles that we as non-consumptive innovators face. Would you take some time and share that story as well? These are great stories for leaders to think about how do they relate to our own environments? It's kind of hard to relate to, you know, not having a toilet as a first worlder, but share some um, perspective on the toilet story. 
Sure, India has a gigantic sanitation problem and it's become a national imperative to try to, to improve sanitation throughout the country. So it is very important and they understand that. But culturally, for many years, people certainly in poor villages and, and towns outside of the main cities have actually not had access to, to toilets. So they've gone in public places or discrete public places in fields and things like that. Um, but as the government on a national level has decided this is a priority for us, I think there's a quote from Gandhi who actually said that sanitation was more important than religion in, in some ways. Um, but it, it, because so much sickness and, and ill health comes from poor sanitation, so it is more important. But simply having toilets built and put in in towns and cities across India doesn't change people's desire to use them. It's it's such an important part of the culture that that the government's even decided it was going to pay people or pay towns to use toilets. And there's been a shaming that's gone on for little kids have been given whistles to to whistle at people who are walking out into the fields where they know they're probably going to go defecate. It's they they haven't figured out a way to actually respond and integrate to what the real challenge people has. And for example, simply installing toilets doesn't mean they're going to work. So there have been lots of toilets that were not connected to, to plumbing. There were just physical toilets sitting there and they, as you can imagine, get disgusting really quickly. So we know that you have to completely reconceive the, the problem you're trying to solve, see it differently and figure out a way that people are so eager for it, they want to pull it into their lives rather than just pushing it on them. It's, it's a little bit like the well story, as well intended as it is, how could that possibly be a bad thing? until people understand how it solves the problem for them in a better way, they're not going to choose to use it. Again, people, apathy is going to the field. It's easier to do. I'm comfortable with that. I know how it works. Um, so you need to find ways for people to want that solution because it's so much better and functioning so much better and part of a, a vibrant economic ecosystem that, that people make money creating good plumbing and toilets and people understand how it benefits their lives. It's not just because the government has told them this is the new habit. So um, there was a movie called Toilet, A Love Story that was the hit, I think it was last summer in India, which, which struck a nerve because it was a little independent movie about a couple who married and the husband didn't tell the wife in advance that the family home he'd be bringing her to had no, to no indoor toilet and much chaos ensues as she decides should she stay married to this man without the toilet and in the end happy ending he installs a toilet in his family home and all's well that ends well but it struck a nerve as people are struggling with what are they actually trying to solve and accomplish and until that becomes something that the local community understands makes their lives better it's simply not going to happen uh, beautifully told the, the toilet story seems far-fetched but having myself been to India on numerous occasion, occasions, I can really relate to it. This is a beautiful country, amazing landscape, and, 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 and the cultures and spirit and vitality and religion and cuisine are unparalleled. And it's very true that India you know, has abject poverty. I, I've said to my wife, we will take our boys to India someday when they're old enough to appreciate the struggles that people face. It is not uncommon. In fact, it's very common to be in your car at a stoplight seeing someone defecate in the media because there's no access to sanitation. So although it seems far-fetched, it's very true and very real. Uh, thanks for sharing those stories. I think they're so humbling and um, inspiring at the same time. You also have, Karen, a lot of stories that are closer to home. I love the story about the Singer sewing machine. Would you give us a little bit of history lesson on how the Singer sewing machine met a non-consumptive need, competing against apathy, 
It's also a great example for leaders thinking about in America and in the first world how we can create innovations to you know, build prosperity as well. That's, a, that's actually a very important story because it's a reminder that America, right, we consider the land of prosperity, really was an impoverished country. It was not prosperous at all in the 1800s. And uh, all of the things that you would say about some of the world's most, most impoverished third world countries now was true of America then. It really was. Children worked uh, for pennies and in exploited conditions. There was, there was actually all kinds of manure in the streets of New York because horses were, were the main mode of transportation. Um, America was all of the things we, we sneer at in other countries was the case of America. But America, through the innovations of people like Isaac Merritt Singer from Singer Sewing Machines, uh, demonstrates to us what's possible and what the power of innovation is. So Isaac Singer was a bit of a rogue. He wanted to be an actor. He was one of a number of children of, uh, from an immigrant family and did have no intention of being an inventor or an innovator in any way, shape, or form. But his acting career wasn't going that well. And somehow he got he took it upon himself to tinker with an existing uh, design for a sewing machine that was not working very well. He didn't invent the sewing machine. It may be the most famous name in sewing, but he didn't invent it. He just figured out how to make it work better. Now, at the time, people, seamstresses and women in homes would take all day to, to sew even a single shirt. But he figured out how to improve the sewing machine so that you could create a shirt in, say, an hour. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time as well, people wondered, would, would women even be capable of learning this complicated machinery? It was just seen as such a culturally um, radical shift to, to create a sewing machine that could not only speed up the work in factories, but could speed up the work in people's homes. So what Singer did so well was see the opportunity, right? Non-consumption, women were just, were doing nothing. We're sewing at home and people had very few clothes and um, people didn't need storage and our, our lives were totally different. He figured that at the average woman at home or even in a factory would, their life would be dramatically changed and shifted by freeing up all that time so that they could either create more, sell more to, to factories or create more for their family very quickly. So by creating a, a, an actual good design on a sewing machine and, and selling it door to door, allowing people to buy it on installments, creating his own factories and transportation. There's still, it was, it was a global success, a gigantic global success. They were huge in Russia and in Japan. There's still a Singer um, railway station in Scotland that, that had been created specifically to get products out of a factory in Scotland. Singer was so successful, he changed not just the idea of you know, being able to sew in your home, but other industries respond around it. Closets, the fact that we all became known as a, a standard size and we could go into a, a department store and buy something. All of those things were possible because he made it possible for an average person to sew quickly and created industries that were all around that, that, that spawned from that. He was an enormously successful innovator, and it wasn't that he invented it. It was just that he made something better, and he figured out a business model that made sense so that average people, it was accessible and affordable and was life-changing for them. Karen, if I remember correctly, the part I liked most about that story was what was kind of a, a linchpin or a, an accelerator for him was another colleague that had invented or designed the kind of the standard patterns. You alluded to it, but it got me thinking that Singer was successful, even made more successful by another person that he kind of combined a little bit with that, that were the, the uniform patterns you could buy helped to exponentiate the use of the machine. Is that right? That's right. That was a guy called Butterick. And um, people my generation 
might remember that even when I was probably, you know, in my, in my sure. single digit years, yeah. you still would get excited if your mom would go buy a pattern and make you a back to school outfit. And yeah. Butterick was one of the dominant names. So yes, the fact that somebody figured out how to create patterns that were standard sizes and that were simple. You know, we could lay out, I don't know if you've ever sewn, but you, you, you put the, you, you pin the pattern to the cloth and you cut it and then you sew it in a specified way and you create an outfit or a design. Um, that that was a game changer. That made you didn't have to design your own clothes. You could have that fancy dress or that fancy shirt just simply by buying the right pattern. Which again, that guy had made simple and accessible and affordable to average people too. It was it was one of many knock on innovations that created this gigantic effect across America. And he was only one, but he was one extremely successful innovator who's who was a catalyst for other innovations as well. I think of all the stories, that one had the most uh, business impact on me because it made me think about some of the things that I'm doing for the Franklin Covey Company that could exponentiate if I was a little more thoughtful about thinking of other innovations in the marketplace that I could piggyback on or collaborate with. It was a great story. Uh, Karen, in our final few minutes here, I want to revisit a concept that you helped to popularize in the previous book I mentioned, How You Measure Your Life, that you brought back into this book. We talk about the difference between deliberate and emergent strategy. This has had a significant impact on how I operate as a member of Franklin Covey's executive team. Constantly thinking, am I in a deliberate mode and I am in emergent mode? Would you kind of take a moment and define the difference between deliberate and emergent and give some reassurance to those who may be finding themselves in this emergent strategy and why it's good to be there? Sure, it's very important actually. Most companies that are successful, we know from a lot of research, are not successful with the initial strategy that they imagined. Companies that have, I think it's 97% of successful companies have actually shifted their strategy at some point along the way. And that's because as much as we think we know when we're starting a company or a product line or a new service, there's so much to learn. You can't know everything in advance. And so if a company or a person focuses too exclusively on one thing before they absolutely understand what will succeed in the long run, uh, they're likely to fail because it is about good strategy is a combination of what we call deliberate strategy, that this is my strategy, this is where I want to go, and this is how I'm going to pursue it, and emergent strategy, which is strategy that you didn't think about, but you understand and see opportunities coming around you or to you, or you spot something and you realize I need to experiment or, or proceed with that to see what I can learn. They're both very important, but most companies need to be in deliberate emergent, deliberate emergent mode as they go along and, and create the right strategy for themselves. And strategy is also never static, right? It's very rare to have the strategy in advance, know exactly what you're gonna do and stick to it without change. That's probably not a recipe for success. So getting that balance right and understanding the importance of being open to emergent opportunities in creating your strategy is essential to not having blinders on to the great opportunities that you might otherwise have missed. Karen, I'm so grateful for your time today. Superb conversation. Highly recommend the book, The Prosperity Paradox, coming out on January 15th, 2019. It's a great book to read to your kids. It's a great book for you know book clubs and for team leaders to buy for their teams. It might take us a month if I was the team leader because I wouldn't want to stop every couple of pages. But so many inspiring stories around raising 
initiatives through thoughtful innovation, careful deliberation, changing your thinking that are also have enormous relevance in the first world you know, market economy. Grateful for your time today. Tell us, as I end most interviews, what's next for you? You have got a lot going on, co-writing books with Clayton and Ifosa. Tell us what's next on your horizon. Well, I continue to collaborate with Clayton and Ifosa working on the issues around prosperity. So through the Christensen Institute, uh, I look forward to doing that. And uh, I'm a writer at heart, so I always look for opportunities to continue writing. And a speaker as well, I understand too. I do speak, yes, That's thank right. you. That's right. Karen, grateful to have you. Hope to have you back maybe in the next year when you're in Clayton's next book, whatever that is, comes out. You have an open invitation to come back to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Karen. Great 2019 to you. And everybody, thanks for joining us today. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, it is now the world's largest and fastest growing digital leadership newsletter. It's complimentary, comes out every Tuesdays via email. Visit franklincovey.com, click on the On Leadership button, register. You also can sign up members of your family, your community, your business, your team. You also can download this in an audio podcast format on all your favorite podcast stations as well. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week with a new guest for On Leadership. <laughs>